0: Father, we humble ourselves today, right now. And I I pray that the same way that we humble ourselves right now is the same way we will start our day tomorrow. The same way we will end our day today. In reverence and in focus. In all of who you are. And do ask that... um, as you minister to us in worship as we gather around your presence that you would also minister to us through your word today may it bring life to us may it light a fire within us may it burn off all the chaff and wheat father, the things that are not of you so give us eyes to see it ears to hear it minds to comprehend it Hearts with fertile soil, feet that want to run with obedience. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week in Revelation chapter nineteen, Jesus begins to return. Jesus is returning one day. Now this week we get into his millennial reign. And this is one of the most controversial scriptures in the Bible. I do have an opinion on it, um, though I hold very, very, very loosely to this opinion. I hold uh, loosely to my opinion about the rapture, only loosely, but on this one I hold very, very, very loosely. So... um, I don't preach today's big idea with conviction. I hope to preach it with this idea that we can learn a little bit, then we can go home and we can study it, and then we can take it back to God and ask him, what is uh, applicable for you and I, and how do we apply it? Um, I wish I could preach it with conviction, but it, it it's just in my opinion, highly complicated. And it seems to be complicated for many people who are smarter smarter than me as well. And um, nevertheless, there are three different perspectives when it comes to the millennial reign that are mainstream. Certainly there are more ideas that someone came up with in their basement, right? And um, they're posting it somewhere, but... Um, This is just um, the three mainstream ones. In the first perspective of the millennium. So the millennia, millennium, it's this thousand-year reign of Christ. That's what's going to be clear is there's going to be a a, a thousand-year reign. Now, where there's different perspectives that we're going to get into is some people believe right now that you and I are in the millennia. Other people believe that the millennium might have already happened. Some other people believe that the millennia is yet to come. So, the first perspective is amillennialism. Um, amillennialists de- deny the millennium. They believe that this is uh, describing the de- uh, deceased souls of believers in Christ who are now with him in heaven. They believe the binding of Satan as being effective during the period of the first and the second coming of Jesus. Though it will shortly end with Christ's return. And I know you're like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Just receive this information and then the further we go along, you'll be able to place it. And this is what they believe. Amillennialists, the gospel can be fruitful in their opinion because Satan is bound. That's the only reason the gospel can be fruitful. And just before the end, Satan will be released and allowed to deceive the nations. Christians will await the second coming during the season and the rapture will happen upon Jesus' second coming. So that's what amillennialists believe. Then there's the post-millennialists or post-millennialism. They believe that Christ will return after the millennium. So essentially what that means is we read last week in Revelation chapter 19... That Jesus returns. Then we have chapter 20 that we're going over today. There's this millennium, the thousand years. What they believe is chapter 20 essentially would be ahead of chapter 19. And that Jesus is going to return this thousand year after this millennium. So then after this thousand year reign where Satan is locked up, then he will return and everything will be finished. Complicated, right? So they believe um, that this... 1,000 years is figurative, that the gospel is shared throughout the world as Satan is bound. They believe in the golden age of the earth. So during this age, um, they believe that righteousness will abound, the church will experience prosperity, and they will have a significant influence on society. So post-millennialists believe, hey, look, there's gonna be a lot of success and fruitfulness within the church. So what they would believe is that one day during this millennium that we might have a Christian president, like an actual Christian president, right? That we might actually have actual Christian senators and Congress people. They believe that society is gonna be fruitful within um, the church. They believe that righteousness will abound. They would believe that the Great Commission will be entirely successful. Therefore, they believe um, that eventually most people will be saved. This is just the short synopsis. But there are good people who we love who would believe post-millennialism. There's then pre-millennialism. So, what does post mean? Jesus will return after. What does pre mean? Jesus is going to return before this thousand years. So there's pre-millennialists. But within that, there's kind of two sects, right? There's kind of two sects or ten sects of just about everything, right? So within this, there's... Two that are kind of the main ones, but there's the histori- historical premillennialists. And this is labeled this way because um, this was the kind of like the original thought where the premillennialists came from. So the historic ones, it was like kind of the first thought. But then, you know these pre-millen- or, sorry, pu- yeah, pre, they started to kind of change their mind. There was a sect, there was a small group within them that started to say, I kind of interpret scripture a little bit different, so since I interpret scripture different, here's what I believe about premillennialism, right? So then this became dispensational premillennialists. And this was developed by John Nelson Darby, who divided biblical history into a seri- series of ages and Dispensations. So, there's two different sects within premillennialism. Both premillennialistic perspectives follow a literal and chronological reading of the text. So, premillennialism has the perspective that Christ must return before the millennia. Hence, premillennialism. Therefore, the idea is after the second coming of Christ, he will reign for a thousand years over the earth right before God's redemptive purpose of the new heavens and the new earth. It's complicated. You see why I'm not preaching with conviction? It's a challenging subject. One author says this. According to the uh, historic premillennial, premillennialists, the present age will continue until a brief period of tribulation, after which Christ will return to the earth to establish a millennial kingdom. At the second coming, there will be a resurrection of believers and a public rapture. These resurrected believers reign with Christ who will be physically present on earth in his resurrected body and will reign as king over the entire earth. During this period, Satan is bound and cast into the bottomless pit so that he will have no influence on the earth during the millennia. After the millennium, Satan is released for a brief time during which he leads astray a portion of the world's population in rebellion to Christ, then Christ destroys this rebellion, judges the world, then ushers in the eternal state. Woo-hoo, right? Um, I felt like someone gave me crazy pills while I was studying the past couple weeks. How do you, it's like I feel like people could devote their whole life to understanding this one section of Scripture. So today, Revelation 20, we're getting into this idea of the millennia, this 1,000-year reign of Christ. So verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. There it is, right? He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw a throne on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I just want to stop there for a second. Um, it's already been three times. Much of much of um, revelation has been um, just kind of like, figurative, right? of what is to come, a lot of images that we try to figure out what these images mean. Already three times it's talked about this thousand years. So one of the areas, and I think it's gonna be three more, one of the areas that I, I may have some conviction on is I do believe that this is literal. There is a literal thousand years as it's emphasized already three times within just a few verses, and it's going to be emphasized a few more times. So one of the things I can walk out of here with conviction on is I would say that there's a a literal thousand-year reign. Nevertheless, let me find my spot. The rest of the dead, verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, And to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So this is where the idea of the millennia comes from. The vision that John sees starts, though, with Satan being bound. So what we see here is Satan is bound for 1,000 years. I'm going to read verse... Uh, or Verse 1 through 3, one more time. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding it in, his, uh, in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended after that he must be set free for a short time so during this 1000 years the one who tempted adam the one who tempted eve the one who led the deception and the spirit in babylon we've learned about babylon a lot over the past several weeks the spirit of Babylon that even still resides today. The one who killed Christians had other people kill Christians. The one who got kicked out of heaven and brought one-third of the angels with him. The one who deceives and deceived the world. This person, Satan, Lucifer will be locked up for 1,000 years. And what this means is, for the first time in thousands of years, the church can no longer blame sin on the devil. How many sins do we hear people talk about that they're blaming the devil? Well, the devil made me do it. That dang devil... or just me, right? The devil is going to be locked up for a 1,000 years. And the world is going to manifest without that temptation, without um, any kind of excuse. And it's going to be for 1,000 years that he's locked up. But during this time, Jesus' followers will be resurrected and will reign with him. What does that mean? Verse four, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I wish I had more answers for this scripture. And if we want to spend the next um, several more weeks on Revelation chapter 20, I can get them for you. So, um, or we're just gonna hit hit this on the way back, right? Revelation backwards, so we're really gonna start here in a few weeks. Like, is he serious? I'm not. The case could be made here, though, that there are many groups that will be resurrected for these 1,000 years. So who are these groups that will be resurrected during this period? Who's going to be brought back during this 1,000-year reign? I think think what it's saying is literally people will be coming back to reign during this 1,000 years, brought back to life. That's what resurrected means, right? So some say, that they believe during this 1,000 years based upon this scripture and other scriptures that the apostles will be back during this 1,000 year reign. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the sons of man sit on his glorious throne that was also referenced right here in uh, Revelation 20. You who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Many say that this is the 12 apostles sitting over the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Some also say that Jesus' followers, you and I, those who have died in the past will be resurrected during this time. Revelation 2, 26 says this. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. So that's pointing towards possibly during this time that he's given you and I people of Christ authority during this 1,000 years to oversee those who have not died and are alive during this period. Who's going to be alive during this period? I think we'll touch on that here just in a little bit. But you and I will be given authority. Maybe like he's like, Joey, you get to run a subway. I'd much rather oversee a Panda Express. But... Maybe that's what he gives me. Um, We'll have some. That was funny. I'm laughing at it. (laughs) No Chipotle. Chipotle. I haven't had Chipotle in like, I don't know, eight months, nine months. Yeah. Don't get me started. (laughs) Revelation 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So we have been made to be be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and we will reign on the earth. So there's possibly during this 1,000 years authority that we are going to be able to steward the earth the way that God created us to in the beginning of time. So, This could be a scripture that points to believers ruling over natural-born people during the millennia. I do not hold tightly to this. What is obvious, though, is this. Is believers who do not receive the mark of the beast on their forehead or their hand, those who received persecution during this time of tribulation will be brought back to life because they were faithful to Jesus. That is clear. During the millennia, that will happen. Revelation 20, verse four, I saw uh, thrones on which uh, were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we think we understand a lot about God, don't we? And then there's those who are like, I really don't understand anything and we kind of beat ourselves up. But even we feel like we understand some things there's a lot going on here. And what this does to my mind and my idea of what God is going to be and what heaven's going to be like completely expands it. Heaven is not going to be the way that I think of it, right? Jesus is not going to be the way that the chosen has made him look. As we talked about last week, what does Scripture tell us? That there was nothing pleasant about his appearance the chosen Jesus, he could probably be on GQ one day. He's got that nice beard, nice wavy hair. He's got hair, good complexion of skin. Heaven and what's next is gonna be far better than we could ever imagine. But what Revelation 20 is helping me understand is I have so much more to learn. I can't comprehend in its fullness. So during this 1,000 years, people who didn't receive the mark and people who were persecuted and beheaded, they're gonna rule and reign with Christ. They're gonna come back to life, whatever that means too, right? I think, and this is where this could go anywhere. I believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, amen? Amen. That's scripture. I also believe that when Jesus was on the cross and he's talking to the thief, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So I believe that heaven, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. I believe that there's this instantaneous or seamless movement into the presence of God but then what does it mean here? And it's like, no matter how much study you get into, it just blows your mind. What does it mean here to be resurrected? If, if, if I die today and to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and then I, was, I died for my faith, right? I was beheaded. I'm now with God. Then what does it mean to be resurrected during the time of this thousand years? And I say, God, you're so much bigger than I can imagine. But it's clear that this will happen according to Scripture. But the question might also be, who will these believers, who will believers, who will the apostles rule over? Simply put, it would appear to be those who did not die during the seven-year tribulation and those who continue to have children. So, yeah, it's just pretty simple. During the seven years, everyone didn't die. They survived all the water spoilage, the atmosphere spoilage, the fires, the mountain-sized thing from the sky that hit the earth, the great earthquakes, people survived that. And I'll tell you this, if that happened, I ain't ever coming out of my zombie shelter, (laughs) right? I'm not ever coming out of that closet. I am remaining in there, um, (laughs) not coming out. Nevertheless, it's those people, the people who survived this tribulation, which tells us not everyone's gonna die during tribulation. Now, whether these were believers or some people of faith that survived, who knows? My leaning right now is they're just going to be people who didn't know God. Either way, it's those people who then finally come out underneath the rock. They start having babies again. They start expanding culture and everything else once again, but without the temptation of Satan So that's who Christians will rule over. That's where if we form governments during this period, we might have a Christian. Well, if God gives Christians authority, then we will have a Christian president. If God gives Christians then authority during this period, we will have Christian school teachers and Christian architects. We'll even have some Christian pastors. I'm one of those, by the way. (laughs) I am one of those. Just to let you know. Um. <laughs> so these Christians will rule over these people who made it through tribulation. And during this time, those people will have the opportunity to come to know Christ. Now, the interesting piece, though, is those who reign with Christ will eventually extend beyond a thousand years and into Eternity, forever. It's complicated. And hopefully we can answer a couple more of those questions before we end the book of Revelation. But the millennia is an interesting idea because even as I study and research and listen to other people, it's like, well, why even have it? Like, Jesus, when you return in Revelation 19 and everyone sees it, why do we have to have this millennia? Well, it doesn't matter, right? I don't get to choose. It doesn't matter whether I think it's a good thing or a bad thing. It happens. Nevertheless, the millennia will end with Satan's release and final judgment. So he's bound up. There's life happening. Satan will be released. And then his final judgment happens. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceives them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So war breaks out. So war and humans um, are in rebellion. Rebellion takes place one more time, but it's very short lived Satan deceives more people, and they rebel. So obviously, um, these aren't people who are ruling with God. Like, these aren't Christians. These are rebellious people. These are those who are being ruled over by Christians during this period. And these are those who joined Satan who didn't come to know God during this 1,000 years. So why would God even allow this to happen? Um, I think it's because he desires that not one would perish. So he provides one more time, one more opportunity. God desires that not one would perish. So he provides another thousand years. More time, more people, more chances. Talk about grace. Talk about patience. Talk about love. God loves you that much. God loves your family line that much that he says, more time, more people. More time, more chances. Amen? So, um, this period will end and he will judge the dead. So we now get into the judgment of the dead. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white horse. Sorry. No. No. Last week. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a lot going on here. Go figure. All right? Who's judged at this time? Well, the dead doesn't refer to all of humanity. Rather, it refers to those who are sentenced by God. So it's just not talking about people who are here. It's those who are sentenced. This isn't about those who are written in the good book of life, obviously. It's about those who will receive a second death. See, all of us, well, most of us, I can't say that God might not ever r- rapture us, and some people will be raptured, but most of us, well, there's only been a couple people in scripture who were not, who didn't face physical death. So I, if I say all of us will face physical death, i biblically inerrant, or, yeah, errant. Either way, our first death is when our physical bodies die on this earth. A second death is when someone is thrown into hell. So first death is when we die here. Our physical bodies perish. And what's happening here in Revelation chapter 20 is God saying people are going to face a second death. Satan's going to be thrown into hell. Hades is going to be thrown into hell. And people will face their second death. Now, hell throughout scripture is explained in many different ways. I'm not even gonna touch on all of them today. But the lake of fire and Gehenna, uh, they're both explaining a piece of God's punishment for those who don't know him. Um, Gnashing of teeth, outer darkness and bottomless pit could refer to God's presence being absolutely gone. Those who are damned to hell will never again see truth or beauty. So you're just on the outer darkness. I mean, there's other examples. Soffer, weeping. There's so many examples in Scripture about hell. There are other ways hell is described. Yet I'm not sure that we take hell serious enough. Obviously, I'm not a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. But it doesn't mean that we do not take hell seriously. My perspective, generally speaking, is rather than fearing hell, just accept the invitation of God knocking on my heart and walk with him, walk with Jesus, and I don't have to worry about that. It's generally where I sit. On the other hand, when I minister to people, I want people to experience the reality of who Jesus is that I've experienced. So I want them to experience that fullness. But I want them to experience that fullness for that relationship, but I also don't want them to go to hell. Because hell is a real place. Do you believe that today? I believe the words of scripture only by his grace. So hell is a real place. We as believers understand grace, but we put our faith in Christ so that we feel all right about our destiny. And when we do that, then we, we don't focus on hell. But as I say, much of the Christian church has become unconcerned. We've talked about that a lot, right? We've become unconcerned. And we don't have any anguish for those who don't know Christ. Christ. When you're hungry and you're anguishing over food, guess what you do? You fix it. When your car breaks and you need to get a new car and you anguish over transportation, you fix it. There's so many things that we're anguishing over in the future that might not ever happen to us that we lose sleep over it, we have to get on medicines about it, our health, Um, Decays because we're worried about what could happen to me. Anxiousness, fear, and worry. Come on, somebody. We are so worried about tomorrow and we anguish over that. We lose sleep over it and we get frustrated about it. But the church is not losing sleep over their neighbor's or co-worker's destiny of potentially going to hell. How do we stir up and cultivate that anguish within us again that someone might go to hell? And then that's where, there was a book a few years ago written, The Christian Atheist. And I think, I never read it, I think the idea was we claim to be a Christian, but everything we do in our life is like an atheist. How can we believe in a physical hell, a literal place where people will be damned forever, which I believe in? I believe in a physical hell. How can we believe in that and not go out and anguish over those who might go there? And if we're not, and if we're not anguishing over people's salvation, Why are we not in repentance? Because bare minimum, you know what we have to say? I'm unconcerned. God, I'm unconcerned. The only thing I care about is what affects me. And a lot of us, most of us, many of us during the past season have complained about politics and where the nation is headed, where the world is headed. And at the core of it, we're complaining about it. Why? Because it affects me. My life is becoming different. It's not the way that I like it. So I ask church, can we anguish? Can we become serious about those who may be lost for the rest of eternity? So right here, what we see is the second death, and the second death is where God will send people shut people, lock people, damn people to hell for the rest of eternity. Now, unfortunately, scripture's clear about hell. It's a real place, but culture and society doesn't necessarily believe it and they reject the idea. They reject the idea of there not being a hell that hell is here on earth. And that is a lie. You think this is hell? Um, I'm glad we don't have to taste it, amen? I don't wish hell on my worst enemy. I don't. I don't wish sickness on my worst enemy, a flat tire on my worst enemy. For it's God who brings justice. So, for some people in culture, and even Christian churches, right, for those listening online, that was quotations, will reject the idea of there being a hell. They believe it isn't biblical. But both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is revealed as loving and judging. Judging. God has a standard, amen? He does. We don't make it to heaven based upon our works. We make it to heaven based upon the blood of Jesus and His grace. That's it. But He still has a standard. And His standard is this Put your faith in my Son and have a relationship with Him, obey Him, repent of your sins. And in just the simplest terms, give me everything that you have and try your best. Now your best is not perfect, but that doesn't, you don't use that as an excuse, right? Give me your best in every moment that you have as you put your faith in me. And then we get to spend time in eternity in heaven forever. And then there's the others who say, I reject you, God. I want to live my own life. I choose my own way, those people will be in hell. Those who just choose to live under their own mantle. So that's God's standard that really matters. Faith in him or faith in self. Two different destinations. So he has a standard. Nevertheless, Exodus 34. Verse six. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So what does it say, God is so abounding in love and patience and kindness, and he's, he's setting us up to succeed, but he has a standard. And if we don't walk in his standard, not by works, not by law, but by relationship, we will be punished. Second Peter three, nine and 10. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Jesus is patient, but one day his patience will end. Jesus talked about hell more than the prophets and the apostles. It was more important for him to let people know it was a real place. Hell is a real place. Do you believe that today? Does your life exemplify that today? You know what's really really important for us? Eating food. Making money. Do You wanna know why it's important for us? Because we do it every day. Makes sense? Is it important for us to make sure that people don't go to hell? Or do we just convince ourselves that that is important? Because if it was important for us, we'd probably try to find ways to help people understand the love of Christ. How often? Every day. Nevertheless, hell is real. Yet there's many reasons why people don't want to believe it. And there's, you know, even more of those. Um, The world doesn't believe in hell because they believe it isn't fair in their opinion. And they don't believe it's fair because why could God send a good person to hell, right? Because the world who's under the elemental forces of the world they don't understand the things of God. They think that there's a good person. But what scripture tells us is what? Romans three twenty three: all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we need a Savior. Now, when Jesus makes us a new creation, then we become heirs of the kingdom, and the perspective's completely different. But the world and their thought process says, well, I don't believe it because no way God would send a good person to hell. This is where we get the argument, why would a good God, right? This person was a good person, so they don't deserve it. And people never think that they deserve the punishment that they received. Any you guys ever got a ticket? <laughs> <laughs> and you get the ticket and you look at the bill and you're like, I don't deserve this. I was only going seven over. You're still breaking the law. Or those who are going 30 over could have been like, well, hey, you could have clocked me at 22 over. And those who are going 30 over, when they pull you over and they say, hey, you're going 30 over, you respond to him and you say, what? That's it? Sounds good. So we never... We never think that we deserve the punishment that we get. But this isn't a human standard. This is God's standard. And God is perfect and fair in his judgment. And in God's system of fairness and judgment, what he created was a life that he wants to walk with you and I intimately for eternity in heaven. He gave us a fair shot for that. And then, in his fairness, he said, if you don't do that, I'm going to separate you in hell for eternity. So, they don't believe it's fair. Others is universalism, right? Um, There's also those who believe that um, since they don't believe in heaven and hell, they're not going to go to either of them. Yet the reality is heaven and hell are real whether you believe them or not. And the good news is, is God the Father gave us a way out of hell through his one and only Son. God gave the world an opportunity, the way out of sin and death through his one and only Son. Those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Jesus is Lord will what? Be saved. We have a way out today. The world has a way out today. Those who repent of their sins will be saved. So since Christians don't face judgment, what are they to do? You and I will not face this second death. You and I will likely have one death. Maybe he raptures us. I mean, there is um, Enoch, Elijah, Mark Miller. Mark Miller might get raptured. I mean, just, whew, see ya. So, you know, Mark might get just taken up. Bob Stauffer, Stu Jenkins, Mark Snyder. Now I have to say the whole church's name, right? <laughs> Sorry. All of MCF, everyone sitting in this room, we might just, whew, be taken up. I mean, we already know it's gonna happen to Macy. What's gonna happen here is um, believers will one day be with him. So since Christians, you and I will not face that second death, what, what what are we to do? Number one, We should be inspired to tell non-believers that they too can escape the second death. We should be inspired because of all that Jesus has done for us. Encouraged today to go out and say, how can we make sure that others do not experience a second death? The next thing we could do is this, is forgive others how about that because god has forgiven us that's really practical isn't it we should forgive others today the other thing we could do is not put hope in this life but put hope in christ and the life to come and finally we can let go of the babylonian spirit materialism in God-proofing our life. We talked about that the past couple weeks. Nevertheless, let's pray. Father, there's a lot going on in this idea of the millennia. What sticks out to me so much is this idea of the second death. That at the end of this Millennia, Father. When the whole story of this existence on earth until the new heaven and the new earth comes, Father, is over. Where this chapter is closed and people will be damned to hell. Father, may, may what breaks your heart break ours. Some of our friends that we've been afraid to bring up your name to. May may we bring up your name to them, our coworkers. May we have some anguish towards it, Father. May the enemy not lie to us anymore. May we stand firm. May we desire that not one would perish. May our number one job be, Father, not what our earthly profession is for money, but our number one job, be a child of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.